Last, uh, last July, actually, it was last summer, I preached a, uh, a very cursory and a very uh, surface-level sermon, uh, both at Broxton and, and at Oak Grove Churches, on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, there's two versions of the Lord's Prayer uh, that we can locate in the Gospel. One of them is found in the Gospel of Matthew, and one of them is found in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, in this particular case, last year when, when, when we went through this, we were focusing on the Luke version, which is the shorter version of the two that you find in the Gospels. Um, today, what I want to do is I want to look back, I want to go back to the Lord's Prayer, and I want to look at just one verse. One verse I want to look at from Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer. And actually, it's a, it's a, it's a segment of a verse. It is a partial verse. Now, the Lord's Prayer is very familiar to most of us, and the words that we're going to read here in just a moment are familiar with all of us, no doubt. If you attend Brock's United Methodist Church, we say the Lord's Prayer every Sunday together. We say it in unison, unison as a congregation. So we're familiar with the words. But what I'm going to ask you to do this morning is I'm going to ask that we take time to read these words, even though we have that familiarity. Let's actually break out our Bibles, or if you have a Bible app, however you do it, let's take time to actually read these words and allow the living Word of God to penetrate our hearts and our souls. So very often, so very often we repeat these words of the Lord's Prayer. And it's just, it's just surface level repetition surface-level words. We don't even think about what we're saying. And that's something else we touched on last, last year when we, when, when we discussed this subject. So that's what I'm going to ask you to do as we read this very, very, very short portion of Scripture from the Gospel of Luke. Let's reread it, and let's allow these words to penetrate the very depths of our soul. The Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel can be found in chapter 11. Chapter 11 of the Gospel of Luke. And specifically, what we're going to look at is verse 4. The 11th chapter of Luke's Gospel. Verse 4. Reads this. And forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Allow those words to sink in with you for just a moment. We've heard these words many, many, many times. We've repeated us these words, most of us probably, many, many times. But again, I'm going to ask you to let those words this morning, these living words of God, to sink into the very recesses and depths of our minds and our hearts this morning. Through this prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Now we pray that in different ways. The, the, uh, the, uh, the, the version that I just read, the very, very short version of that scripture that I just read to you came out of a New Living Translation of the Bible. And again it says, it reads, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. The New International Version, if you happen to be reading the NIV, you read these words. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. The King James Bible, the King James Version, reads like this. Forgive us of our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Some of us are familiar with the words debts or trespasses. Forgive us of our trespasses. Some of the translations of the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew will, will translate these words debts or trespasses. Forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. Regardless of the translation, the idea here is the same, and that is that forgiveness is serious business. It is serious business for God. It is serious business for Jesus Christ. And he expects it to be serious business for us, for those who call him Lord, for those who claim to be his disciples. Because that's what God's kingdom looks like. Remember what we talked about last week? We talked about God's kingdom and how we are in the season of what's called kingdom tide. And that during this time we're going to be, we're going to be, we're going to be discussing scriptures, we're going to be discussing topics that revolve around Jesus' teachings, specifically Jesus' teachings on the kingdom of God. We're going to be recalling these things. We're going to be emphasizing these things. We're going to be learning these things. And we're going to be applying Jesus' teachings on God's kingdom and how we reflect that to the world as residents. There's another word I would very, very much like for you to get accustomed to. Residents ingrain that word into the again into the deepest recesses of our minds that we are residents of the kingdom of god we have that distinction here on earth we are residents of god's kingdom we are jesus's subjects we are jesus's subjects if we truly believe him to be lord because what do subjects of the Lord do? They follow. They follow. As such, we live out Jesus' kingship today on earth. This is why we pray on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. We're part of that equation as residents of the kingdom of God on earth. So considering all the uncertainties, all the chaos, all the, all the distrust and all the disdain that we're experiencing in our local, our national, and even our global culture right now, I think that it is incredibly important for us to remember our call to forgiveness and to reconciliation as agents of Jesus Christ, as residents of the kingdom of God on earth. I want to point out to you one more piece of scripture before we get too deep in today's sermon. And you can locate that in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. 
I'll give you just a second if you want to try to locate that. But this particular scripture is found in the middle of what most of us anyway are going to consider to be Jesus' greatest sermon. And that was the Sermon on the Mount. It is, it is really the Christian manifesto, if you will, of, of, of Christian ethics, Christian, Christian practice. And here what we're going to see is just one of the many, many examples that we find throughout the Gospels of exactly how serious Jesus is about this idea of forgiveness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 24. Matthew chapter 5, verse 24. And it reads like this. I'm sorry, back up one verse to chapter uh, verse 23. 23 and 24. So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go and be reconciled to that person, and then come and offer your sacrifice to God. The message translation reads it like this. If you're in a place of worship, and you're about to make an offering, and you suddenly remember a, gr a grudge that a friend has against you, abandon your offering, leave immediately, go to this friend and make things right. Then, and only then, come back and work things out with God. Forgiveness, reconciliation with others is our call. As Christians, as people who claim to be disciples, followers, forgiveness and reconciliation are our call. But like we talked about last week with the idea of compassion, we're not just called to some idea of surface level forgiveness. We are not called to surface level forgiveness. The forgiveness that we are called to, just like the compassion and the agape love that we are called to, is a radical forgiveness. It's radical. It's crazy. It's unexplainable. It is nonsensical. Just like our own justification before God, the forgiveness that we are called to is not based on merit. It is not based on something that somebody has earned, and it isn't based on what we think a person deserves or doesn't deserve. The forgiveness, the reconciliation that we practice is based on grace and it is based on grace alone. That same grace, that same grace that propelled Jesus to suffer the cross for sinners like you and like me. When I was preparing for this sermon, I discovered, uh, I discovered that the famous author and, and, and Christian, uh, C.S. Lewis, had a lot to say on the idea and on the practice of Christian forgiveness. And uh, I found many, many uh, profound writings by Mr. Lewis that were really right on target with our subject here today. And what I would like to do is I just want to read you a few of them. Again, he's... He, he, uh, he very much expounds on this, on this idea, this practice of Christian forgiveness. And I want to share some of his thoughts with you right now. Here's something he wrote. On the subject of forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer, C.S. Lewis writes, and there, right in the middle of it, right in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, 
I found the words, forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. C.S. Lewis says there is no slightest suggestion that we are offered forgiveness on any other terms. It is made perfectly clear that if we do not forgive, we will not be forgiven. There is no slightest suggestion that we are offered forgiveness on any other terms. It is made perfectly clear in the Lord's Prayer that if we do not forgive, we shall not be forgiven. Here's another, here's, a, here's another piece. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. Allow that one to sink in. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. Here's another one. Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. And then, to mention the subject at all, is to be greeted with howls of anger. How true is that statement? Everybody likes the idea of forgiveness until it's me that has to forgive somebody. And when I'm in that situation, when we're in that situation, somebody else suggests the idea of forgiveness to us. We get mad. We get angry. Here's the last one I'm going to read. And I think this is a problem that a lot of people struggle with on this idea of forgiveness. And, and C.S. Lewis really clears up this, this false narrative or this false idea in this, in this direct quote here. He writes, forgiving does not mean excusing. Forgiving others does not mean excusing what they have done. Many people seem to think that it does. Many people think that if you, that if you ask them to forgive someone who has hurt them, that you're trying to make out that there was no hurt in the first place. Obviously, if that were so, there would be nothing to forgive in the first place. No, this doesn't mean that you believe the offender's next promise. This doesn't mean that you put your ultimate trust in, in, the, in that person, in that offender. It does, however, mean that we make every effort to kill every taste of resentment in our hearts, every wish to humiliate, every wish to hurt, and every wish to pay them back. That is very, very important. To forgive somebody does not mean to excuse their behavior. To forgive somebody does not mean to excuse bad things that people do. That's not what forgiveness is about. It does, however, mean that we make every effort to kill the taste of resentment in our own hearts and any desire that we have to retaliate, to seek revenge, to humiliate, to hurt, or to pay that person back. Many of you that are watching, and, and I mentioned it this morning in my, briefly, briefly in my, in my announcements, you're aware that we're currently doing an online prayer course through Facebook, uh, and that's going to be wrapping up this week, as a matter of fact. And though I very, very much hope that we can continue using many of the resources and, and the lessons that we've learned over these past few weeks on into the future, during both our personal prayer times and our communal or congregational uh, prayer times, Anyway, this course that we're taking, this course that we're, that we're going through, it's based on this book, 
And I don't know if you can read this from your, from your screens or not, but the name of this book is How to Pray. A Simple Guide for Normal People. <laughs> How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. And it's by a gentleman, a pastor by the name of, uh, an English pastor by the name of Peter Gregg. And uh, the statement that I'm going to make here is, is not something that I would say if I didn't mean it wholeheartedly. I, I wouldn't say this if I didn't have every, have every bit of confidence in what I'm about to say. But this is hands down, hands down, in my humble opinion, the absolute best book on Christian prayer and practice that I have read and that I put into my own practice in a very, very, very long time. I cannot recommend this book enough. Hands down, one of the best books on Christian prayer and practice that I have read in a very, very long time. I wouldn't have any problem ranking this book in my top five books of all time, right behind the Bible and maybe a couple of others. But as I was reading this book, this past week actually, I got to a chapter that was based on our scripture reading from today. Luke 11, verse 4, which of course discusses the subject of forgiveness and reconciliation. And as I got to the middle of that chapter, I was literally brought to tears with this overwhelming knowledge, this overwhelming presence, this very real presence of the Holy Spirit with me, surrounding me, moving me, prompting me to release my own resentments to release my own anger and to embrace and live out the radical forgiveness of Jesus. Because, you see, besides forgiveness being a command, besides forgiveness being something that we should really, really be drawn to be obedient to Jesus Christ for, too, with forgiveness also comes healing. Forgiveness brings healing. Forgiveness brings healing to the person who is doing the forgiving, and very, very oftentimes, forgiveness brings healing to the person who is being forgived, forgiven. It brings healing to the person who is doing the forgiven, forgiving, and very oftentimes, the person who is being forgive, forgiven. Very oftentimes, forgiveness, radical forgiveness, even carries out beyond uh, just one or two people. I'd go so far to say that the, the, the idea, the expression of radical forgiveness and, and the healing that it brings, the kind of healing, the kind of, the kind of forgiveness that's espoused by Jesus, truly has the power to heal wounds, to heal people, to heal communities, like nothing else. Because this is the kind of forgiveness that people don't understand. This is the kind of forgiveness that baffles people. This is the kind of forgiveness that doesn't make sense to us. It doesn't make sense to us to forgive the unforgivable. Our default position, our default position as people, as fallen sinful people, is to be self-righteous. Our position is to seek revenge, to seek retaliation. We want 
to harbor resentments. But that's not the way of Jesus, and that's not the way of the kingdom of God, and that's not what we're called to. Radical forgiveness is this upside-down way of God's kingdom that we are called to live out. Here's that word again. As residents, as residents of the kingdom of God on earth. And as we have seen, it is precisely that kind of forgiveness that has brought about true healing and true change throughout the course of human history, time and time again. Some of you may recall, if you were in attendance at either, at either Oak Grove or Broxton last year, um, when we were talking about, we were, we were, when we were discussing the Lord's Prayer, we, were, we got to this verse on forgiveness. I recall to you the story of the radical forgiveness that was displayed by the, by the Amish people uh, a number of years ago following a horrific, tragic school shooting in Pennsylvania. Many of us remember that. We recall that. Uh, radical forgiveness, you see, is, is unfortunately, it's, it's not part of many. <laughs> radical forgiveness is, is unfortunately not part of um, what a lot of us really embrace. However, the Amish people embrace this idea wholeheartedly. It is part of their DNA. It is, it is who they are. It is what they are. It is a non-negotiable in their belief system because they believe that they are called to live out very literally the teachings of Christ from the Sermon on the Mount. Many of us recall that forgiveness that the Amish communities displayed in the aftermath of those killings of those little school children. And we recall how for a brief moment in time the world stood in absolute amazement at the healing that took place as the result of people simply being faithful to Jesus and living as residents of God's kingdom. Though it was no doubt excessively and extremely painful for them to do so. Because of their forgiveness, the entire world got a view of the radical forgiveness of Christ. This, this forgiveness that doesn't make sense. And the entire world experienced a little glimmer, a little glimpse of healing. Today I'm going to give you another example of what radical forgiveness looks like. And this one I'm going to be taking directly from my book, How to Pray. Because I think the story is especially powerful today. And I can tell you that God used it with me this past week to tear into my very soul bringing me down to my own acknowledgement and my own repentance of unforgiveness in my heart and pushing me towards the practice of reconciliation. So let me do that now. Let me just read you this account. This account of radical forgiveness that Jesus calls us to. What that looks like. How that's lived out. And the healing that it can bring. At the age of six, Ruby Bridges was volunteered by her mother to become the first African-American girl to attend an all-white elementary school in Louisiana. 
Each day, she was escorted to and from the school by up to 25 federal marshals to protect her from the crowd of angry protesters at the school gates. One woman would regularly scream death threats at Ruby, who, by the way, was six years old. Another protester held a black doll aloft in a coffin. Every parent pulled their child out of that school. So having braved the crowd's hatreds, Ruby would sit all alone in an empty classroom. She was taught by Barbara Henry, the only teacher who was willing to offer her an education. Ruby recalls wandering the school during her breaks, looking for all the other children. Images of this tiny little girl, so smartly dressed and clutching her school bag, guarded by suited men who were twice her size, polarized the United States. Norman Rockwell depicted the scene in a famous painting called The Problem We All Live With. So watching this tragedy unfold, child psychologist Robert Coles offered Ruby some counseling. Once a week, he sat in the humble home that she shared with four siblings and her parents who could neither read nor write. You looked like you were talking to the people in the street on your way to school yesterday, he said to her on one occasion. Did you finally get angry with them? Were you telling them to leave you alone? No, doctor, Ruby replied politely. I didn't tell them anything. I didn't talk to them. Well, who are you talking to, the doctor asked. The little girl stared at him. She said, I was talking to God. I was praying to God for the people in the street. You were praying for them? But Ruby, why were you praying for them? The doctor asked, and her eyes widened. Well, don't you think they need praying for? Robert Coles was lost for words. Regaining his composure, he whispered, What do you say when you pray for them, Ruby? Oh, I always say the same thing. Please, God, try to forgive these people. Because even if they say those bad things, they don't know what they're doing. Ruby, Ruby had been courageous and dignified and remarkable. But this was just a six-year-old girl, six-year-old child. She developed that kind of forgiveness at home. She developed that kind of grace at her home where she had been taught to love her enemies, where she had been taught to pray for those who persecute you, where she had been taught to forgive again and again. All these lessons she learned from her poor, illiterate parents.
Because you see, church, and again, I'm taking these words directly, directly from our book here. The Lord's Prayer is a cry for reconciliation at every level. In our broken relationship with God, it is a cry for reconciliation with our broken relationship with others. It is a cry for reconciliation in our broken relationship with the entire world. We simply cannot separate our prayers for the kingdom of God from Christ's radical call to be reconciled with those who sin against us. Let me say that one more time and drive that point home for you. We can't separate our prayers of thy kingdom come, thy will be done from Christ's radical call to be reconciled with those who sin against us. We don't get to pray one and not pray the other. We don't get to hope for one and not hope for the other. To hope for one and not practice the other. The same forgiveness and reconciliation God gives us with himself, he expects, he desires, he wants with us. Whenever we're offended, whenever we're hurt, we can choose to forgive. How about this? We can remain, it is possible, we can remain silent on social media when our views are attacked. We can do that. It's okay. We can deny ourselves the, the, the sugary sentiment of playing the role of the victim all the time. We can love and we can pray for those who would otherwise be our enemies. Because that is the calling that we have on our lives. That radical forgiveness. I reminded you guys last week of, of something that Broxton has been going through since January. And, and that is focusing on our call to be a Romans 12 church. To be a Romans 12 body of believers also to believe to be Romans 12 uh, children of God, Romans 12 followers of Jesus in, as individuals. And I've talked to you about how, how Romans 12 so, so clearly, so clearly mirrored, mirrors so much of Jesus' own teachings, especially those teachings as they apply to the kingdom of God. So as we finish today talking about reconciliation, talking about forgiveness, driving home, allowing Jesus' words to soak into us. Forgive us of our sins, God, as we forgive those who sin against us. As we do that, I'm going to read to you Romans 12. Some verses from Romans 12. Out of the mouth, out of the writings of the Apostle Paul. This is what I'm going to conclude with today. And again, this is from the message translation of the Bible. Bless your enemies, Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy and share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in, you get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I will do the judging, says God. I will take care of it. 
Our scriptures tell us that if you see your enemy hungry, go buy that person lunch. Or if he's thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise him with goodness. Don't let evil get the best of you, but get the best of evil by doing good. Pray with me this prayer from the 51st Psalm. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions. Wash away all of our inequities and cleanse us from our sin, for we know our transgressions and our sin is always before us. Create in us clean hearts, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within us. We pray in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I hope to see many, many of you next Sunday here at Broxton United Methodist Church. Have a wonderful week, and as always, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you.